Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing tonight? Boy, the weather's been wicked, hasn't it? Really weird weather. All sunny here. In the middle of it all, hail. <laughs> hail and rain, and then God, all sunny again, and then hail and rain. We're supposed to have thunderstorms tonight. I don't know, man. The spring weather, something, something to behold. I was out mowing. Yesterday, I was out clean, cleaning my yard, mowing my lawns, and, you know, weeding and all that stuff. Had to bring in my lawnmower and my weed eater and everything. Everything got wet. Didn't expect it to. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour. Welcome to California Haunts Radio. I am also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state of California. So that means that if you have a, if you have what you think is a paranormal problem, give us a ring. Shoot me an email at the radio station at the radio website, and we'll get out to help you because we're nearly in every county in california not to add and also to add to that nevada oregon washington and hawaii so we're around anyway i want to welcome everybody here tonight we've got a great show it's a different show like i tell you guys i like to mix it up a little bit with you know paranormal stuff and then real news stuff that means stuff to people and i think this is a topic that means stuff to people um airline safety you know I mean, we all, well, almost all of us travel via air, airplanes. You know, I've been very fortunate. I've been to Europe three times. Um, I've been cross-country dozens of times. And I've been very fortunate. My dad used to be one that traveled at least once a month via airline, you know. And so he was real fortunate. That, I mean, he and he said he had a few interesting trips on planes. I know why. The last time I went back, he, back east, it was... April, in the middle of snowstorms. So I had my share of interesting moments, land, you know, landing in Chicago. So <laughs> I can say that. But it's nothing my dad didn't tell me about. <laughs> so I was pretty prepared. You know, my friend was sitting next to me and I said, uh oh, I can see the reflection of, of, the, of the plane's landing lights on the runway. It's icy out there. But anyway, um, if you're watching from YouTube and you're new, please subscribe. There's a little ghost down there in the bottom right-hand corner uh, with the magnifying glass and a uh, Sherlock Holmes hat on. We have uh, almost 250 videos over there of varying topics. As you can see tonight, you know, is a different type of topic for us. But, uh, yeah, please subscribe. We're looking for subscribers. Uh, visit our website at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. In fact, we're going out live on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch. And the California Haunts Radio website right now. It's kind of cool, too. But anyway, I want to welcome everybody here. And our guest is a pilot. He also does other stuff. So I'm going to go ahead and let him explain that. Because you know how I am about that. Mr. Shem Malmquist. Malmquist. And uh, I think he has a lot to say about airline safety. He's, he's written a book about one uh, crash that we can also talk about. And also 5G. You know, there's a lot of talk about 5G around airports and stuff, how, how, how that's affecting planes and communication. 
All right. Anyway, let me bring him on. Hello, sir. Hey, good evening. Good Can evening. You hear me all right? I actually have a cousin who flies for United. Okay. Yes. We got You're a bit a of a delay here. Cabin, pilot or cabin crew? He's a pilot. Okay. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, there's uh, a few thousand around the world, I guess. I don't know what the total number is, honestly. But there's, uh, there's a few. So, uh, yeah, it's been interesting. I've been flying since, uh, well, I guess since 1976 is when I first started flying. So it's been a little while. But uh, flying around the world since... 1987. So it's been a been an interesting time. Uh, so uh, I guess by way of background, uh, I heard you say a little bit about me, and I am currently a Boeing uh, 777 captain, and generally go literally around the world about one or two times a month. Uh, in addition, I am a full-time faculty and professor teaching aviation safety at uh, Florida Tech, Florida Institute of Technology, and uh, and I'm involved with a number of different safety, uh, a lot of a lot of different safety initiatives, a lot of different industry organizations, a lot of industry work over the years. So I've been involved. I guess most of my life at this point. Uh, I'm originally from California also, actually. So thinking about the weather out there, which I definitely prefer most of the year. There's, there's a couple months where it's okay. Absolutely. So tell me, what's it like? I mean, I used to fly ultralights when I, when I was younger. And I know what you fly is nothing like an ultralight. So what's it like to be in the cockpit of these planes because there's just so much instrumentation well I, I don't think i mean there's really at this point honestly less instrumentation than there was when i first started because with the automation and the computers we're actually displaying quite a bit less on the instruments uh which is a good and bad thing in some respects of course the information that is normally important is what's displayed and what's up front but on the other hand we are constrained by what somebody sitting in an office or a cubicle imagine what we would need under a certain phase of flight and that can create issues in fact it does create issues at times so that's a whole other interesting area that i've been working on uh, involved with the uh, with safety and how to design future aircraft, and it really does matter in terms of the pilot needs to have the ability to control the aircraft and control the environment. Mm -hmm. But also, in order to do that, you actually have to have really accurate feedback. You have to be able to know what's actually happening and not 
just a representation of what's happening. You really need to be connected to the real world in order to be able to make the correct judgments and decisions. So it's it, it's interesting. And these are some challenges going forward in terms of automation and the use of computers in not just aircraft, but really any kind of system that we are adding software into. It's, it sounds like the argument that the uh, Gemini uh, astronauts had initially because they didn't want to have that whole thing controlled by a computer because they wanted to be able to, to take over if something went wrong. Yes, you need to be able to control the environment. It, it doesn't mean that a computer is not a really useful tool for controlling it mm -hmm. all the time or a big part of the time. But in the end, you want the computer or the human to be the final final arbiter of what happens and what is safe or what isn't. Mm -hmm. For example, a computer is dependent on the information that you've hooked it up to and what it can receive. It does not have the ability to look out the window and say, you know, that sensor data is inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it can make the wrong decisions. And if the pilot is being fed the exact same information, of course, that's a problem. Right. But in the end, a human has abilities that computers, uh, I won't say never have, but none on the, there's no computer out there that can really match what humans can do at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They can replicate certain things. And in those things that they can replicate, they can often do a better job. But those are limited to the scenarios that were envisioned in the design itself. And if the person who was designing the software could not envision it or didn't imagine it or didn't design for that particular scenario, the computer simply can't handle that. Whereas, of course, a human is able to adapt mm -hmm. and work outside of those kind of that kind of framework if we give them the tools to do it, which, of course, is a caveat. What I was just thinking when you were saying that was Eastern Flight 401, the misbalance with the uh, autopilots. When they're, yeah, they were, well, they were, of course, focused on a light. Right. And... But wasn't it a case where <clears throat> um, the, guy, the, the guy that was actually flying the plane saw the readings different or Wait. saw the readings as, as they were supposed to be? Once the once the autopilot was disengaged, I, I think that's very, very common. In fact, a lot of accidents, um, not just aircraft accidents, but accidents in general are caused by essentially what you're describing is confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. When you make up your mind about what you see occurring and or what you're perceiving, and then you start excluding information that goes against that and seeking out information that confirms it. I mean, it's a, it's a really serious problem. And I mean, frankly, we're seeing it in the political sphere. It's a huge issue. Mm -hmm. And it leads people to be really, really sure of a position because they are not accepting information that might be outside of what their paradigm is mm -hmm. of course mm -hmm. for a pilot it could be deadly or any i mean it's not just pilot though i mean it's somebody who's running 
any kind of complex scenario where decisions are critical. Mm -hmm. Definitely very risky for in the medical profession. Mm -hmm. And we do, of course, have a really, really high medical error rate in the United States. But in those cases, you know, the, there's only one person dying at a time. So I suppose it's not as newsworthy unless it's somebody famous. So there, well, look, look at these Tesla cars that drive themselves. Yeah, they don't really drive themselves. Um, really, a, they are a very good example of what not to do with automation. Yes. Uh, they are, um, I mean, it's really an amazingly poor understanding of how humans act, what humans' roles in, are in the system, what computers are capable of and what they're not capable of. Uh, you know, really bad and very flawed assumptions. I mean, the electric vehicle is, you know, great, but, you know, the, having the, com the computer control and the automation is really problematic. In terms of automotive companies, probably the company that, well, there's a few companies that really have it down and really have nailed this concept between the balance between automation and providing the human with the control, but using the automation to keep the human within boundaries that they don't accidentally go off and cause an accident. Um, Volvo is a good example of a, of a company that's extremely good at that, mm -hmm. um, where there's never a time where the computer even feels like it's seating control or taking control. And so the driver never would feel like they can relax their guard. But if the person gets distracted and it starts going off track, the car intervenes. Mm -hmm. It's um, really probably one of the best uses I've seen. Um, mm -hmm. There's I mean, there's some couple other companies that do very similar things, but it really is well designed and well thought out in terms of that. Absolutely. Well, when you talk about airline, you know, when you think about airline safety, I mean, everybody, not everybody's concerned. I, I used to love to fly. I was never afraid. You know, I would get on airplanes and I, the takeoff, the landing, the whole thing, you know, I, I love the whole thing, but I know people who don't even want to step foot on a plane because they're reading all this stuff in the newspapers all the time. I mean, how concerned do people have to be? Well, I don't think that they need to be all that concerned. What, what happens with that is just, if that's, you know, what they call availability cascade or availability heuristic. When people are exposed to a lot of information, they start to uh, kind of see it everywhere. Uh, and we have it, it manifests in certain ways. For example, you buy a certain type of car and all of a sudden you see that kind of that car all over the roads where you didn't even notice it before. But we see it you know, you know, like some really easy examples. You know, people on the East Coast are really afraid of earthquakes. I mean, growing up in California, we, right. you know, I mean, it was like the only concern with them is okay how strong was that you know really it was you're very relaxed about it mm -hmm. uh, with you know with exceptions I mean you know that there's boundaries but at the same time people from other parts of the country outside of Florida are really afraid of hurricanes and the Floridians are out having hurricane parties oh it's a great opportunity let's buy some liquor you know we're going to hold up um 
tornadoes are like that in the Midwest where people are afraid of those. Right. Uh, you know, people worried about, for example, Islamic terrorism or afraid of going to certain parts of Paris, which is, you know, arguably safer than any city in the United States. And, and I think that part of that is what you're exposed to and things that exacerbate your fears. Shark attacks are another one, mm -hmm. of course, but meanwhile, surfers are out there all the time, but you know, Midwesterners going to be afraid of them probably. <laughs> so it's, so it, part of it is just what we're exposed to. Um, air travel remains extremely safe, uh, for a comparable trip. It's always going to be safer. So it's not that, you know, getting in the car to go to the grocery store is more dangerous than getting in an airplane. That's just silly. But getting in a car and driving to New York, your exposure there is going to be magnitudes higher than on an aircraft. And, and we've managed to make flying incredibly safe. Um, and when you think about it, it's actually kind of amazing that we've done that. And it has to do with a few ways the industry approaches risk. Uh, it's in general, serves it very well that the industry moves very, very slowly. It's very um, conservative about making changes. And so it's, so that really mitigates a lot of the problems. And, and of course, having a pilots on board that are, have a self-interest of self-preservation. Uh, and even if they're not worried about getting, you know, getting in an accident, they're worried about getting violated or losing their ability to earn a living. So that's, that actually might be in some cases a more powerful incentive, interestingly enough, but it's, um, but yeah, you know, it's generally a very safe thing. And I, and I should caveat the reason why the risk of these like certificate action probably is higher in a lot of pilots minds is that pilots are very, very low on what you would call the neuroticism scale. So they are tend to be not very sensitive to threat or worried about threat, which you need that personality type in order to be able to not, you know, not get worked up if you have bad weather or you have some, some kind of, in, you know, some kind of issue. It's what allows people to remain calm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at the same time, it, 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 I think in certain venues, it could lead people to doing things that would be, um, you know, more risky in other endeavors. So, you know, flying is kept safe because the pilots are, uh, you know, cautious. You have more than one person and it's a very, very controlled environment. I don't know that the people would necessarily not take risks if they didn't feel that, that anything else was at risk, but that's a whole different environment. Right, right, right. And then, you know, I was thinking too, when, when there is a crash, doesn't the FAA really look at, I mean, they, they look at every component on that airplane to see what caused that crash. I mean, they're going through there, you know, with, with a fine tooth comb. Well, it's actually the National Transportation Safety or whoever it is, yeah, yeah. or the equivalent agencies around the world. Sure. And yeah, I mean, the whole point of the accident, uh, accident investigation is to identify problems, identify areas of risk and make recommendations to try to prevent future accidents. So it's, um, 
it's a little bit well, what other industries do have this, but aviation has also been aided by really opening up, having a very strong reporting culture, um, making sure that people are aware of what's going on and, and hopefully not covering up any kinds of problems, um, which is actually a huge problem, for example, in the medical industry where people tend to cover things up, uh, more worried about liability, where the, in the airline industry, self-reporting and reporting problems or deviations is encouraged and expected, and people are never held, um, they're not in trouble for ever reporting any kind of problem or deviation, unless they were intentionally and willfully violating rules and creating a unnecessary risk which goes back to what i was saying before is that pilots are going to be in my experience pilots are probably more concerned about getting violated than having an accident um, mm -hmm. and of course if you're careful and you're staying within the bounds where you won't get violated you won't have an accident either so it works mm -hmm. out well but but as far as fear factor and and i should also say that part of that is because you know, everyone feels like they're invulnerable to a certain extent. So, so their vulnerability to an accident, they feel like it won't happen to them. And that's typically true. So if we keep in with the other bounds and hopefully we'll be, then, then we'll stay safe. And a lot of the education that we're doing now is getting people to try to accept that, you know, that an accident can happen to even very good pilots. And that, that's been actually fairly effective too in the last few years, but it's been that that's been more challenged to overcome just because people's prevailing attitudes is just like, um, in a 90% of drivers think, think that they're in the top or that 50 over 50% of drivers think they're in the top 90%. You know, it's, you know, we always think that we're better or invulnerable to any kind of risk or problem. So that's, that's kind of a separate issue, but in cars you have, you have no control over other drivers. And of course, people generally aren't as good as they think they are. And we get distracted easily. And we have a lot of distractions because of things like cell phones, things like, you know, that really should not be taking place in an airplane. And in my experience, do not. So that makes a big difference as well. That's a good thing to bring up too, for people. Um, you know, they always tell you to turn, to turn off your cell phones. What, what does a cell phone do to an airplane? Well, the cell phone itself, it, it, so this 5G thing is kind of newer. Mm -hmm. um, there have been cases of the transmission of a, you know, even though the signal is weak, from a phone or even a, excuse me, an FM radio type of receiver that can actually emit some signals. Because the uh, wires are so long, they are very, very sensitive to very weak signals. And so you can get an errant signal where something is picked up just because somebody is transmitting nearby. And so that's part of it. Um, that has been mitigated a bit in more recent years, but it is still potentially there. Now the 5G has added another dimension 
and we'll see if, how it pans out. So far, things have been pretty good, and we haven't seen any problems that I'm aware of. <clears throat> but 5G, uh, excuse me, has a... Um, the problem with 5G is that it's very close to the frequency range that is designated for aircraft radio altimeters. And oh, aircraft radio altimeters are on a band that was chosen because nothing was close to it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so they're not, the receivers for radio altimeters are not designed to very, very finely discriminate against other transmissions that are fairly close by just because it was assumed nothing would get close to it. However, uh, because of uh, primarily some uh, mistaken choices by a couple of the larger cell phone providers, they find that they need to encroach on that bandwidth and they purchased it from the FCC um, over the objections of the FAA actually. Mm -hmm. and other people in, in the industry at the time. This was known, but, you know, there were, I think, people in position high up at some of these organizations that overruled those objections. It's a whole story unto itself, I think, politically, uh, back in 2018 or so, in 2017. And these signals, because they can transmit near the radio altimeter signal have the potential to interfere with a number of onboard aircraft systems that includes the not just the simple things for example we use the radio altimeter to aid in even a manual landing on the larger wide bodies where it's much more challenging to get an accurate idea of your height above the ground because you're so high up when you're landing. But in addition, it interferes with the autopilot functioning, um, auto throttles, which are designed to have different modes at different phases of flight and do different things when you're near the ground as opposed to higher up and be fooled into doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. There are landing awareness systems, terrain awareness systems, ground proximity warning systems, um, on the fly-by-wire airplanes, there's a landing flare augmentation systems. Uh, all of these can interact in unexpected ways, and we just don't know exactly how it will interact. So to a certain extent, uh, you know, the industry is very cautious, and we don't want to take any chances. Uh, is there, you know, is it going to um, manifest into a real risk? Well, the problem is that you don't know until it's too late and it will occur when you have a combination of factors that make it by definition a rare event and the longer we go without it the more confidence there is that it's not a problem and the less guard there is to protect against a potential problem and you can have a situation where all of a sudden you run into a uh, into something that nobody has been trained for and really creates a surprisingly bad situation. So that's really, I think, where things are right now. Uh, Europe and some of the other countries limited the bandwidth, limited where these antennas could be, uh, limited the strength, uh, designed the antennas so it's not 
pointing upward where it can affect aircraft. They mm -hmm. took a number of measures that just did not happen in the United States. So, so it's a potential out there. So far, uh, knock on wood, it hasn't been. And, you know, it's one of those, it could be just a really rare event. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, it, if it's something that happens once every 10,000 hours, then we might not see it. You know, even by probability, we could go 10 years and not see it. Then all of a sudden see a problem. Um, there's just no way to know at this point. And that's, you know, that's the problem. Absolutely. What about um, put, put when, when you're on board to put your phone in airplane mode? Does that, does that do anything? I mean, does that do, do anything to the phone or anything like that? Or is that still, can that still potentially affect the airplane? No, when it's in airplane mode, it's now, um, only going to be limited to the Wi-Fi that the airplane has, assuming okay. if the airplane's equipped. And that's been pretty well tested on the aircraft. The problem with not being in airplane mode is just that uh, it hasn't been tested. Okay. You know, it's not that it necessarily would be a problem, but you would have to go out, take all these different kinds of cell phones that are constantly changing power and types of signal and different designs, whether it's the latest Samsung or you know, Apple product or, you know, you know, Motorola or whatever they are. And you have to test all of them. Otherwise you can't say it'll work. So it's, or you can't say it's safe. Mm -hmm. And that's really where the problem is. So it's not that some systems aren't safe and some test systems have even been tested to ensure that they are for a lot of different flight modes, but they, it just becomes impossible to test every single one of these. And that's where the problem comes up. It's Absolutely. just too much. And I know this is done on every flight, but <clears throat> why is it requested that the, that the no smoking sign go, go off when, when you guys are getting ready to land and take uh, off? Well, no, no. As far as smoking, smoking has pretty much been banned on every right, airline right, around the world right, for a number right, of years. Right. Um, <laughs> so, I haven't flown in a while, so. <laughs> yeah, no, it, we don't really, uh, I don't think there's any airline that allows smoking anymore. But, you know, I mean, really just fire danger was always a risk of it. And, you know, still is a in-flight fire is one of the, worst possible things that can happen you can't pull over you know you're and fires can burn and progress very rapidly mm -hmm. and you can end up with a really bad situation very quickly and there's been you know, several accidents because of in-flight fires so so that's really the issue with cigarettes and um you know apart from that of course they they really the nicotine really created a lot of issues for maintenance and you know, for aircraft systems. It's uh, pretty amazing. I mean, literally, they would have tar dripping out of the you know certain components. Days is really disgusting. Yeah, it's. <laughs> well, I can imagine because I mean, every plus everything's on you know that's all that air, recirculated air going through there, and oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, it's going through, you know, the newer airplanes through really right. good HEPA filters. And, but then the air is still changing out pretty quickly, but it's, but it goes overboard through outflow valves and 
those were getting coated with tar back in those days. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's been, you know, you know, no smoking has happened for really a long time now. So it's really not an issue. As a pilot, um, what do you think the most, the most difficult part of your job is? Oh, that's a good question that, you know, as long as everything is um, working, it's, there's not, you know, that flying the airplane is fairly straightforward. Probably one of the biggest challenges right now, I think in general, is that um, the system has gotten so reliable that it has become more challenging for pilots to maintain the skill sets to have to be able to manage the off nominal conditions and that is an ongoing issue Uh, and it's exacerbated because in training we tend to train for those things that we have seen happen Mm -hmm. that seem statistically likely but the events that kill people are things that are not likely and haven't happened and traditionally the way pilots receive skill and training for those was through experience mm-hmm. but now you can have pilots that are extremely experienced um, that have not really experienced anything or any kind of unusual situation in their career so so providing ways for to get that training is definitely a challenge other than that, the busier, busy phases, you're just getting ready before departure. A big part of flying is the planning, um, staying ahead of it. And that, you know, that's probably the, uh, by far the biggest part. And then the busiest phases are pre-departure through initial departure. And then uh, during the arrival, when there's a lot more dynamic changes and things that can happen. So it's, um, so those are tend to be busier, but, but very manageable because people are so highly trained. So it makes it, so it's not, they're not problematic or anything like that. Um, other areas are more gray, uh, weather avoidance, uh, learning how to identify convective or thunderstorms, uh, landing on icy conditions, um, things of that nature definitely can add more challenge and, and people have to be more careful. And, you know, those are other areas where training is extremely important to make sure that people are doing it right and following the rules. And so, so I'd say that's, that's probably some of the more challenging areas. Some of the others would have to do with um, complex decision-making. Uh, for example, an aircraft is flying up in airway that until a couple years ago that we always took, um, over you know, through a Iranian airspace. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're on that type of leg and encounter a, uh, have some type of problem, does the, do you want to divert, for example, to Tehran um, with the political situation, or is it better to continue to a more distant point, balancing those risks and making that kind of decision is more challenging. And, and it's also very much the kind of decision a computer 
really has no way of making um, because these are really subjective problems. You know, how do you program a computer to be able to look at the exact scenario, the exact situation that you have, you know, weather conditions at various points and the, um, for example, looking at the crew or also passengers and considering what passports those kind you know those people have things like that that can create a huge mess depending on what country you go to mm -hmm. so the, those kinds of things are are definitely a challenging kind of decision that um fortunately don't come up very often but require that human ingenuity to be able to solve absolutely absolutely now you wrote a book about an airline crash correct um a couple books yeah i've got uh there's this one which uh see if i can move it up so oh, this right one here. i wrote it with uh, roger Rappaport. this is angle of attack there which we is go about the yeah that's good which is about the air france uh 447 accident and then more recently we did a book um uh, grounded um which i don't know if that if you're crabbing it or you probably just had an image of it but, um this is the other one more recently which was on the um really more about the boeing max and some of the problems that are involved with the implementation of software in these systems so um yeah we had to write a book to make sure we got both airbus and boeing mad at us so that was that was good we accomplished that so we consider that's a job well done the uh but in the end we didn't really i guess cr criticize the companies as much mm -hmm. uh, and more just sought to understand how these scenarios happen what transpired to put those put the design in those conditions and what kind of decisions were being made uh all along the way but one thing is very clear you know, when I look at accidents over the last you know, 25 or 30 years, uh, we're really not seeing pilot error as being a factor, although it's being listed as a factor. Mm -hmm. It's really due to various biases that happen during the investigation phase, I would say almost more than anything else and biases that we have in terms of causality mm -hmm. where we tend to look at everything uh, as a sequence of events we tend to use something called reliability theory where we are looking at every component and the failure rates including considering humans in that role and when you use some of those more simplistic models the it's very easy just to end up and land on the human as the cause of most accidents where what we are really seeing is the human being a necessary and even and vital component of the um, overall system design where the expectation is that the human will manage those scenarios that the engineers could not envision in advance and sometimes we put people in situations that are just too complicated and they are not able to manage it 
And that is, you know, when that happens, we call that an error where really we just designed a system that was way too brittle and and we expected too much of humans. People are not going to react the same way every single time. In fact, we do not want them to. Mm-hmm. It's the whole advantage of them. But if we're expecting them to behave like a computer and work in a scripted way every time, and then you design your system around that expectation, it's not going to work out well. Right. You make some really bad assumptions. Right, right, right. What happened in the case, you know, for, for nobody that's read the book, what, what happened in, in, in the Air France case? Well, there was a lot of different, um, <clears throat> a lot to it, really. Um, let me get more water. Water turns out to be really, <clears throat> excuse me, really important. <clears throat> so, in the, <clears throat> excuse me, i That's something, <clears throat> something in my throat, sorry. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I don't know what's going on. But in the uh, Air France case, the pilots departed Rio de Janeiro in the evening, which most call, you know, most flights from the, um, you know, from the Americas depart in the late afternoon, early evening, going when they're going to Europe. Mm-hmm. So pretty typical. And that's how this, the schedules are worked out and, and balanced. They had spent a couple of days, they had, a, I think, a two-day layover, as I recall. And then they were flying up to uh, Paris. And on departure, uh, excuse me, a pretty standard, uh, typical day, a crew of three pilots due to the flight length being a bit over eight hours. And so they did what is pretty typical. They they have a captain, a first officer, and then a relief pilot. And the relief pilot uh, normally is a, uh, for most airlines, we're using first officers as a relief pilot. But the in these kinds of flights, the both the first officer or co-pilot as well as the relief pilots are fully qualified and type rated in the aircraft. So they legally could operate as captain. So they are, so they take off. And the first thing that happens is the, normally the relief pilot takes the first rest. And the reason is because on an evening departure, nobody is tired yet. And so you don't want the captain trying to sleep and not get any sleep for the flight. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same with the first officer. And so the relief pilot sleeping first comes up. He hasn't really gotten, didn't get that much sleep, but he's not really that tired yet either, or, or he shouldn't be. I don't expect. Um, so you, so he comes up to relieve the captain. The captains usually take the middle rest period on those kinds of flights. And the reason for that is because the last thing you want to do is be sleeping right before you start your descent and then try to wake up all groggy and figure out what's going on for the most um, work intensive part of the flight, which is the arrival planning and descending into the country. So the captain is taking the second rest 
they have some weather in the area, which is pretty typical. Um, you know, for crossing the tropics, it's mm-hmm. basically a constant that there will be thunderstorms. And the captain goes to the back to get ready to sleep. Um, they have a you know, designated crew rest area on the aircraft. And he's back just a couple of minutes when the crew, the two first officers or co-pilots who are sitting in front, see that they're encountering or coming up on some weather. And it doesn't take that long when you're traveling eight miles a minute. So they see this weather in front of them. Uh, I should also say that both of these co-pilots are actually really highly experienced. They both uh, had flown aerobatics. They both flew gliders. They had a lot of flying, really a relatively large amount of flying time. really good records had a very very good reputation Uh, and so they see some weather then they start trying to deviate around it Um, one of the issues that came up at this time is that the way that weather is been historically trained as far as thunderstorm avoidance using the onboard aircraft weather radar is really a bit inadequate so they they turn into what they think is a thinner area where there's less weather but it turns out to be an area where they encounter these high altitude ice crystals and these high altitude ice crystals fairly rare phenomena and they people knew they were out there but in this case they uh, the size of these ice crystals is larger than what had been assumed would be possible by the aircraft designers. And this very quickly overwhelms their pitot tubes that are used to measure the ram air pressure so you can measure your speed. Mm -hmm. So they lose all indication of speed. And the problem is that on these kinds of aircraft, there's no way to recognize or know what speed you're going if you've lost that kind of sense. There's not a difference in sound. Um, you don't have any outside speed reference. There is um, you know, really just no, and there's no feedback on the controls or anything like that to tell you that you're going faster or slower. So the crew is really not knowing what is happening. And and the same is also true for the flight control computers that also have lost their sensors from the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so it loses its ability to uh, basically control its environment in a normal way and it degrades to a uh, degraded form of flight control logic. The uh, simultaneous to a few other factors going on they're also in turbulence in the top of a thunderstorm they ended up um, climbing without really realizing it entirely getting slow and the aircraft encounters what we call an aerodynamic stall where it loses lift over the wings the problem here is that although pilots are trained to identify aerodynamic stalls in both simulators and in lighter aircraft at lower altitude 
the way a aerodynamic stall manifests at cruise altitude in a large aircraft is completely different. And our simulators, even though we've improved the models, are just not able to um, just they're, they're just flat out not able to manage that. And uh, and so what happens is that a real stall feels a lot different than anything they've encountered. And so they people don't recognize the stall. They don't realize what's happening. And in this case, very quickly, they start losing altitude very quickly, even though they seem to be at a reasonably nominal pitch attitude and they have a lot of power. They start trying to call the captain up. The captain is, um, we don't know exactly where he was, but he's only been back um, a couple of minutes. And based on my experience, I think that he was where any normal person would be when you're getting ready to lie down and go to sleep. He's in the lab changing mm -hmm. and, you know, using the, using the lab before he tries to sleep for a couple hours. So when they're ringing a chime, trying to bring him forward, he's not hearing it because he's not in the crew rest area. Mm -hmm. He would, it would, would make no sense for him to be in the crew rest area that quickly. So at that point, they're descending. They don't know what's going on. They finally, the captain finally comes up. He has no awareness of what's going on. Of course, he didn't see any of the history of it. And they continue down without realizing what's happening. And, and a lot of this goes back to some of the problems that, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier with lack of feedback. Uh, they really had no way to know what the state of the aircraft was. Mm -hmm. And so they, they ended up hitting the water. Um, a lot of different factors that led up to that. And of course, it had to do with design decisions and decisions between the airline. And uh, unfortunately, most of the issues are pretty pervasive across the industry. Uh, it's an interesting accident in that everybody uh, from, the, from Airbus, the air designer of the aircraft, Air France, um, the pilots, everybody was actually doing what they were supposed to do, which is what we're seeing on most of these accidents. Um, we're seeing accidents where everything is doing what they're, everybody does what they're supposed to do, and the system works exactly as designed. And, you know, the MCAS was another example of that. The system worked exactly as designed, um, did what it was supposed to do based on the design. The pilots reacted in the way that, um, you know, basically the way that they were actually trained, although what they were actually trained for was different than what the assumptions of what they were trained for by Boeing in, in the design phase. So, so you have a disconnect there, but it's not that everybody wasn't trying to do the right thing. So it's, so these are, it's. It's complex, but accidents are not occurring for the reasons that people think they are. I would uh, say very simply, but occurring for in other areas, but in ways that we actually can mitigate and solve them by using better hazard analysis methods. Um, one of the best coming um, out of MIT by Dr. Nancy Levison where she has really developed some uh, extremely robust uh, 
hazard analysis methods that are able to manage um, extremely complex systems and identify hazards in these kinds of systems and flaws and assumptions. So, so that's been um, you know a big focus of a lot of my other work is implementing um, some of those concepts that have come out of Dr. Levison's work. Now, my question is this, wouldn't it be better? I mean, like you say, a lot of this stuff is designed by computer engineers, you know, these processes. Wouldn't it be better if they actually worked with the pilots themselves to come up with this stuff? Well, you would think so. I mean, Boeing did, <laughs> actually. The problem with pilots using pilots in that way is that um, you know, pilots and pilots tend to be very um, confident and don't necessarily know what they don't know when it comes to this kind of problem. Very good in their own area, but um, and certainly have very strong ideas of design. But if you take, um, well, uh, like I'll give you an example with weather radar. There's one of the radar manufacturers that designed a system that has an algorithm to detect thunderstorms that is idealized for flying over North America and using techniques that most pilots use. The problem is that the assumptions for how thunderstorms form and manifest themselves is only valid for North America. Other parts of the world, thunderstorms are entirely different. Um, where the water is in the storm is a different, is different. Um, where they reflect from radar is different. And so if you apply that kind of concept using pilots and saying, well, we use pilots as their, our guidance, mm -hmm. um, it's wrong <laughs> just because they, they weren't really the experts that they thought they were. They had not, they didn't have the same kind of experience. Um, part of the problem with pilots in a flight test environment, or first of all, flight test pilots are test pilots for a reason. They're not average pilots. Um, so you just start with that. And then even if you were to pull other pilots into the system that are not technically test pilots, you're not forcing people or taking random pilots. You are using people that are either hired or have volunteered to do that task. And the kind of pilots that do that or are involved with that also are not typical pilots. They're much more closer to the test pilots in terms of knowledge and skills. Mm -hmm. And so the assumptions that they would make on what other people know or understand is going to be based on their own experience and what they know. And that is not necessarily the same of what's really happening in terms of an average, you know, real average person out there. So, so using pilots by itself is not enough. Um, applying some methods of hazard analysis that capture more complex scenarios is a more powerful way to go. And it's not that pilots shouldn't be part of the process or people like that who are subject matter experts, but if you start with a scenario and can generate the scenarios and then ask the pilots or, or subject matter experts, if that is a plausible scenario, now you've 
presented them with an idea that maybe they haven't thought of and they're like oh wait that could happen and they're going to see it but they're not likely to identify problems that they have not seen before and most people aren't i mean we're just not trained to do that and most of our methods of trying to guess what kind of hazards are out there are just based on our own experience and we um really just kind of brainstorm it and we think of what might be possible there's not a formal method to do that um or of the formal methods are limited to the uh, that reliability theory that i was talking about before which by definition constrains things whereas the mm -hmm. system theory that dr levison has created um, allows us to extrapolate into the system design and look at the interaction between all of the components in the um, socio-technical uh, system where some of the other methods really just work for the uh, physical components and then there's a lot of psychology to work with the human component but they are not really connected and work and there's limitations also in that the engineers do not really understand the human factors and the human factors people don't really understand engineering and so you have gaps there as well so that's why a, a method that captures both is definitely more powerful it does sound you're right absolutely what do you have to say to people that are afraid to fly well i mean people are afraid of a lot of i mean some people are afraid to go in the ocean because they're sharks right so, i mean you say the same kind of thing you know so you could i don't think that's just telling people statistics is enough mm -hmm. um, you know people are going to be afraid of things that they feel that they can't control and so it really i think it's more of a control thing and almost more than anything else but i would say that the that i mean i i think flying is um you know, extremely safe i don't hesitate to ride in the back as a passenger mm -hmm. um, i think that um, our pilots our cabin crew the support staff people are really, really doing a good job. And so you're, and the people who are on board have the ability to adjust their behavior. So we end up where you want to go. Uh, one analogy I've used is it's similar to actors in a play where you might have somebody forget their lines. You might have a prop that doesn't work or part of the set gets stuck, but yeah. the actors know where the play needs to end up. And so they are going to adjust the performance and their, you know, where they are and what they say in order to have the whole play end as it should, even in spite of that, you know, let's say part of the set being literally stuck in the middle of the, of the stage. And, Pilots are really working in a very similar way. They are adjusting their performance and not just pilots, of course, you have air traffic controllers, you have cabin crew, um, you know, aircraft maintenance, dispatchers, you know, all these support people that are literally adjusting their performance uh, in order to make sure that we end up at the end state. And they're very, very good at it. And that is literally what 
the job is and what they're getting paid for. So, you know, somebody is, is afraid of it anyway. I mean, it's not different than telling somebody from the Midwest is afraid to come to California because there's earthquakes. I mean, Mm -hmm. what can you say? It's an irrational fear to a certain extent, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, just, they have, they have to experience it and then hopefully they relax over time. Let me ask you one, one more question here. Um, I'm curious because you, you do fly a big jet. You, you right. know, um, what did what differentiates some pilots who are who, who are allowed to fly the big jets as opposed? Well, I mean they're all big, but you know what I mean. The, the somebody who can fly the jumbo jets as opposed to somebody <coughs> who can fly the smaller jets. Um. Well, first of all, it depends on whether the company that they are flying for has the larger jets i mean it's like for example southwest doesn't right all they have are relatively smaller jets Mm -hmm. um and then after that um primarily it is seniority uh airlines are based on the seniority system and and of course pilots can make a choice and occasionally you have some people that prefer to stay on the smaller airplanes or flying shorter haul but uh, generally the trips are a little bit better. The, um, time off compensation, um, you know, it's all a bit better on the, um, on the bigger airplanes. For me, I find that I, I actually get less rest if I was, when I was flying domestic flights. Uh, particularly because I really don't like wake up very early, but, uh, you know, if you had, it depends on the kind of person. Some people are morning people, but Mm -hmm. I never have been very happy about getting up early in the morning and having to worry about setting an alarm and trying to go to sleep early enough to get enough sleep. It just never has been very effective. Whereas international crossing so many time zones, I seem to just sleep, but Mm -hmm but everybody is different. So it's, but the seniority is a big part of it, uh, for the airlines. So, so if you take, uh, American Delta United, et cetera, I mean, the, the people flying the bigger planes are normally more senior relative relatively. And, uh, with some exceptions, the first officer is not necessarily, I mean, that can vary a little bit more, but for the captains, almost always, they are more senior. It's more pay. They've been with the company longer. <clears throat> it does create a situation where your most experienced pilots are flying the easiest trips, you know, and so the, so, you know, there is, that's, is an ongoing industry discussion because, you know, in some ways it would be nice to have people with more experience mm-hmm. dealing with flying in the upper Midwest in the middle of winter or the Northeast, but on balance, it seems to be working pretty well and there's enough safety and, you know, extra margin put into the system that, that, that hasn't really been a problem, I guess, in general. But yeah, so anyway, to answer your question, it's, it's seniority based would be the primary thing. There's not a, somebody who is flying a wide body airplane is not necessarily a better pilot. It's just that they are, they've been with the company longer and so they can do it. So what's next for you, sir? Well, I am working on a doctorate and then, then I'll see what I want to do after that. 
uh, I plan to just continue working on aviation safety. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's rewarding and interesting, um, promoting safety, promoting uh, more work in the safety arena is, uh, it's just been very, very interesting. And not just in aviation and other fields as well. Mm -hmm. The uh, the application of uh, Dr. Levinson's methods have been, it's been really, really fascinating. And we're really seeing some very, very good results. So that's really probably my focus and will remain being just because it's fun and interesting. Um, I don't expect to be flying around the world indefinitely. It's, uh, I like being home, it turns out. There you go, there you go. I appreciate it more. So how can people find you? Um, probably, oh, what's the easiest thing? I, I have a uh, airline safety um, dot blog, which is what has my contact information. Um, of course, I'm available through the publisher of uh, the books as well. And I am also, uh, people find me also through Florida Tech, Florida Institute of Technology, through their website, through their publicity um, department there. And um, trying to think of people have found me through the National Transportation Safety Board. Uh, the Embry-Riddle University. I don't even know where some of the places. It seems like people find me in a lot of different places. So I just, yeah. And I don't always know where they do, but they seem to. So those those would be the primary ways that I think people have reached me. That's um, um, probably the best. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on tonight. I learned so much from you about it. You know, I've always been curious about that stuff, and uh, you cleared yeah. up a lot of my questions. All right. Well, thank you, and uh, enjoy your uh, California evening. Absolutely. My thunderstormy evening. See, I'm, not, yeah. I'm in thunderstorms today, too, so yeah. you never know what's going to happen in May around here. All right. You know. At some point, we'd like to get you back on to talk about your, your next book and all that. You know, and Yeah. Because he has a whole other... Well, it gets into some of the things that we've talked about anyway. So, yeah. So that would yeah. be great. All right, sir. Well, thank you very much. Have a good evening. All right. You too. Good All night. Bye-bye. Right, All righty. I, I did learn a lot. I mean, I, like I said, I, I, I used to fly, I wouldn't say quite a bit, but, you know, quite a bit for me. And I know my dad used to fly quite a bit. And, uh, he would tell me about the different turbulence and all that. And he would, he was even a person, you know, he'd even get up there and go walk into the cockpit to see what was going on. That's how he was, you know. So I, I learned quite a bit. Tomorrow, uh, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're still off topic for paranormal, but I've got uh, Honorable Judge Jim Gray coming on tomorrow, along with my, my good friend, Hen activist Henry Ortiz. They're going to be talking about jail conditions and, and, how, and how Honorable Gray, uh, how Judge Gray, I'm going to say Jim Gray, how Judge Gray um, has been working behind the scenes and since he's retired as well to help find a way to better the jail conditions for, for incarcerated folks. So uh, we're going to be talking about that tomorrow. 
Also, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five people anyway. <laughs> We're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And again, if you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. You know, the, the more the merrier. Click on that little ghost down the bottom right-hand corner with the magnifying glass and the Sherlock Holmes hat. And, uh, and uh, come visit our radio. Uh, man, I'm just like all ahead of myself. Come visit our radio website at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. In fact, this video went out live today, and you can go on there, and it's updated, and all, the, all our archives are there, so you can go month by month and check out our shows, you know, if you don't want, if you don't want to go to YouTube. And sometimes people have trouble finding us on YouTube, so the best way to do it is to go to CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Uh, you see that ticker at the bottom? Well, that's there because California Haunts operates sort of as a nonprofit to where we don't take anything to help people with their uh, ghostly needs uh, or anything else so all the equipment everything comes out of my pocket as i'm the sole owner and just like the radio show you know i'm a retired journalist this is what i do and if something breaks a computer a camera you know whatever breaks it has to come out of my pocket so i could use a little help to help pay the bills you know pay the internet bills and things like that so if you could help me out that'd be great paypal.me at california haunts or if you're uncomfortable with paypal there's venmo at california Venmo and then type in California Haunts. I even have a cash app under, under my own name. But anyway, I want to thank everybody for coming. I will show you his book and where to get his book. You can probably get the other book there as well. And then, uh, like I said, I'll sign off for the night and I will see you tomorrow at 6 30 p.m. Pacific so we can talk about jail conditions. So here we go. That would be Angle of Attack. Air France, 447 in the future of aviation safety. And that book is available at Amazon, and I believe his new book is also available at Amazon. And again, I want to thank you guys for coming, and I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Here we go.